Yep, it's that time. The Damascus Road, Conversations in Theology. And I'm your host, Michael Damascus. Hello, and welcome to the premiere episode of The Damascus Road, Conversations in Theology. I'm your host, Michael Damastus, and I pastor Fort Des Moines Church of Christ in Des Moines, Iowa. I've been there for almost 24 years now. What I'm hoping to do in this podcast is to have an ongoing conversation regarding theological topics and issues. And as we begin today, I thought this would be a great way to begin because we're going to be hearing from a leader in a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Unitarian Universalism is a declining movement in the United States, but this movement has significant and what I believe is disproportionate cultural, political, and spiritual influence. In their own directory listing of Unitarian Universalist congregations, back in 1995, they boasted 1,036 congregations with 205,583 members here in the United States. But currently... They have 1,012 congregations with 148,232 members in the United States. That's almost a 25% drop in membership. This movement is not new. It's been around since the early 1600s in Europe, but it has almost become solely an American movement over time. Unitarian Universalists in the United States boast a very impressive demographic. They have, as members of this movement, typically some of the highest economic strata, and all of them are almost all college graduates. Historically, eight of our U.S. Supreme Court justices professed Unitarian Universalism, as well as five United States presidents. That was John Adams, John Quincy Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Millard Fillmore, and William Howard Taft. This movement actually had its beginnings in the rejection of many Orthodox Christian doctrines, but they did maintain their bearings in what seemed to be historical Christianity. Today, however, they have fully rejected all of that. They have literally morphed into a one-stop shop for anything spiritual, from transcendental meditation to spiritism and the occult, and to even atheism, believe it or not. No matter your belief or lack thereof, this movement is open to anything spiritual, so long as you do not impose any belief you hold onto any other. The one thing that can bring out the ire of any practicing Unitarian Universalist is Orthodox Christianity. In fact, They do not ascribe to any absolutes except that they absolutely stand against Orthodox Christianity. In my city, in Des Moines, Iowa, we have one Unitarian Universalist congregation. In fact, it is my personal polling place. And if I could confess, I have enjoyed voting for people and issues that they actively work against in that meeting place. Before I get into this interview, though. I do want to say this. Whenever I interview anyone on my podcast, I will always treat that person with the utmost of respect and dignity. There is already too much vitriol and bickering in this world, and I'm not going to add to that. It is entirely possible to disagree without being disagreeable. 
That's my intention. That's my commitment that I make to you here. So with that being said, today's interview is with Amy Shaw, the leader of the First Unitarian Church here in Des Moines, Iowa. Amy has led this congregation since August of 2019. And what you are going to hear is me asking a series of questions that most or most Orthodox Christians would be able to easily answer without even a second thought. But you will find that there's a vast difference between what we believe and what the Unitarian Universalist would say on these matters. Also, after the interview, I will share some thoughts about responding to these kinds of beliefs. So, without further ado, I want to thank Amy Shaw for joining us today on uh, the Damascus Road Conversations in Theology. Thank you so much. Uh, Pastor Shaw has led the First Unitarian Church in Des Moines, I believe, since 2019. Exactly right. Awesome. Awesome. And I thank you for agreeing uh, to come on today to uh, the podcast. So, uh, Amy, I'd like to ask you a series of questions, and I'm going to begin with uh, just jumping right in the deep end, if it's okay. <laughs> awesome. Who is God? Oh, what an awesome question. Um, and so I'll answer for myself, not for my whole denomination, because, you know, whenever there are three Unitarian Universalists, there are five opinions. So this is my perspective. You know, God is that beyond which I cannot consider. God is the great I am, the great positive. God is humanity written at its largest and most perfect. And as I am a universalist Christian, um, God... <laughs> God is also the Lord God of my heart and my understanding, the mover and beer and doer in the universe that calls us toward being better. So the follow-up question on that is, how has God revealed himself? You know, in, in my life, God has revealed God's self in a whole host of ways. You know, when there's a, a, a phrase from, from one of our hymns that says, I'll bring you hope when hope is hard to find. And for me, that has been one of the strongest and best ways that the God of my heart reveals itself is by bringing those moments of absolute hope, absolute clarity, absolute making a way out of no way when I was sure there was no way. My, my best example is probably when I was uh, diagnosed with a serious thyroid issue. I had brain swelling. I was sick, 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 sick. Oh, wow. And went into cytokinein storm. They did surgery. They did more surgery. They did more surgery. And they cut and destroyed one of my vocal cords partially. And so suddenly I had no voice. And I was in seminary and thought, you know, my world is over. I can whisper. I can hiss. I'm too sick to ever go back to being a nurse again. What, how will I go forward? And I could feel this voice in the back of my head saying, you know what, take a chance. Don't, don't drop, take a chance, stay in school. I did. And when I was looking for someone to try to fix this, I found a young guy that had been a surgeon for about a year. And the voice in the back of my head said, it's him. It's him. That's why that name keeps jumping out at you. It's him. We did the surgery the first time, and he tried 
the conventional wisdom on how to do it, and it failed. It failed three days after surgery. I nearly suffocated. And a month later, I called him and said, I got a funny feeling. And he said, you know what? I do too. I got a better way I want to try doing this. Would you give me a chance? And I said, yeah, what the heck? Try it. What have I got to lose? And he tried something that shouldn't have worked. And it worked perfectly. And I woke up and I had a voice. And he said, it'll last for six months, maybe. We are 12 years in. And I have a voice. And you know, that's God. That's God revealing itself over and over saying, if you just trust, you got this. To answer this question, I'm just very interested to hear your perspective. Was mankind created? Ooh, lovely question. So I'm a scientist by nature, you know, and I believe that science and theology work together perfectly on this. I believe in a creative generative God And again, this is me personally. I'm not speaking for my entire denomination. All of us are different. I believe in a generative God. I believe in science. And I believe that we are watching God creating in real time. God's time is not my time, is not your time. And so we're watching the process unfold. So yeah, I believe God is a generative God. Man was created. Humanity was created. That doesn't mean science wasn't right in there kicking, you know, the rules work. So when it comes to man and it comes to God, how can man, and I'm saying man and not in a gender sense, but mankind, how can mankind know God? That's the big question we all face every day. And for me, for me, knowing God comes in every moment when you are called to be your highest self, We know God when we help others to be their highest and best self. We know God in every moment that we reject the call of chaos and destruction, where we move toward wholeness. You can be amazingly hurt and wounded and aching, battered and broken, and still know God in every moment of your life as you try to move toward wholeness. You know, and I, I, I really believe that's where God shows itself over and over again is that that one more chance, that agency, that call to be better. Do you believe that mankind has a soul, that, that individual men uh, have a soul? Personally, I do. There is more to us than just a meat sack operating a skeleton. And there is a part of us that is a part of the divine. There's a part of us that hungers for that union. And all I can call that is the soul. Do you believe that mankind has a quote problem that needs to be resolved? (laughs) Oh boy. Um, Yeah, we have a host of them. So let me reframe that. Do I believe that we are born in some kind of sin that we need to fix to be reconciled to God? No, I do not. My perspective as a universalist Christian is that in time, all humans can be reconciled to a loving God. There is nothing, you know, you you think about the way that a parent, a loving parent is with their infant. I don't care if your infant kicks you in the nose and breaks it peas in your eye. It doesn't matter because you adore them and they are your infant and there is nothing they could do that would make you throw them away. And a loving God stands in that same stead with us. There is nothing that we as finite humans 
could do to permanently offend an infinite God. For me, being able to offend an infinite being takes them from being an infinite being to making them small. And I don't believe God is small. On the follow-up of that, does mankind need to be redeemed? I'll give you the yes and answer here. Do we need some form of salvation? Well, humans aren't perfect. We screw it up. We descend into being our worst selves over and over and over. How do you reconcile to a loving God when you carry that weight? It's trickier theology than I would normally give, you know, this short of an answer to. But for me, we have before us an example of a perfect person or an almost perfect, as perfect as human form allows. Using that person and his life story as a way to refocus, as a way to approach God and saying from our heart, I've screwed up. I carry the weight. I don't know what to do with it. It's too much for me. That recognition that I'm not enough in and of myself to approach that highest level, I do need some mediator, whether it's my coming to understand, hey, here's a life I need to emulate or praying for us. I don't think it matters which way you approach this. You can be a scientist and say, you know what? I just need a pattern. I just need a pattern. I'm an atheist scientist and I'm going to look at Jesus's life and say, there is my pattern for how to be a good person. I think that is the redemption that, that we find is that we have been given a life story. And whether we approach it as a pattern or whether we approach it as a living person and say to that person of Jesus, I need some help here. I need you to take this weight. Either way, he's taken the weight. So then the follow-up obviously for me is who is Jesus? You know, Jesus as a young rabbi, as a rabbinical firebrand is the person of Jesus. Jesus as this is what a human could be with the minimum number of failings possible while still remaining an actual human, if that makes sense. This is as perfect as you get um, while still being fully human. I personally believe in resurrection. Mm -hmm. That is not something most you use would probably say. So for a lot of us, he's a young rabbi who knew that he was going to his death and was willing to go to his death to make social change that had to happen to save his people before Rome swallowed them up. Was Jesus born of a virgin? I do not believe that. And I also am not sure that it matters one way or the other. I believe he was born out of love. And that for me is what mattered, you know, whether he was born from a virgin or born from a very young girl taken into her older betrothed house where his two sons were and suddenly she was pregnant and he said to her I'm not casting you away I'm not turning my back I'm not having you stoned whatever happened this is my child um, so whichever story it is it's a story about somebody saying this isn't my baby but I love you anyway or I trust you anyway or you have value anyway and for me that's the piece that matters do you believe that Jesus led a sinless life? I believe he was as close to it as a human gets. You know, if we're talking about somebody who, and I do believe we're talking about somebody who was brilliant, who saw a way forward, who saw how you had to live, to live well with each other, 
And I believe he did that. He did that every day of his life. Did he have those little moments? It's possible. But I don't believe that having a bad day as a 12-year-old where, you know, if you read the infancy gospel of Thomas, where, you know, he's making his birds fly away and, and scaring the snot out of the other kids. I don't know that I'd call that sin. You know, it's a kid being a dumb kid for a minute. What about his death on a cross? Do you believe that that occurred, that that yes. was an actual historical event? Yes, I do. Because again, I believe this was a brilliant young rabbi who figured out that I have to die. They need, they need a leader. They need a martyr. They need somebody that's willing to die for this way of life that I have seen. And whether that was divinely inspired by God or just a brilliant young man, I believe that he was crucified and that he died just like everybody else that day. He, he died. He was there. And of course, for the Orthodox Christian, three days later, he rose from the dead. And you've already said you yourself accept that. Sure. Explain, explain it to me. What do you believe about resurrection? Is that something that we that not only happened for Christ himself, but is that something that individuals can look forward to as well? Yeah, for me, you know, the hope of the resurrection is that this is not just for him. This is something that is ours, that we are sharers in this. And, you know, again, this is probably not something that you would find 90% of you use. The, the general UU statement would be either, you know, maybe that it didn't happen or maybe that it did and his friends went and got the body and hid it so that the mythos could take off. And my point has always been this, it doesn't matter because on that third day, something got up, a human died and something got up and it's a message that redeems. It's a message. It's a, a way forward. And whether you accept as I do that that is in the personage of Christ or that it was a social justice movement that got up and went forward to save. Either way, something very real got up. And then what about uh, the end times? What do you say, you know, uh, what's going to happen at the end? How is this all going to stop? You know, back to the science, you know, it's it's going to stop when our sun goes nova or when we uh, when we screw up our climate change so bad that our planet goes up. I believe that what was seen and what is recorded in the Bible was seen and recorded by some brilliant people who saw what will happen if people don't learn to follow the example they've been given of how to do this well. If we can't learn to love our neighbor, if we can't learn to care about one another, if we can't give away the food, give away the drink, give away the shirt off our back, we are headed for tribulation. We are headed for hell on earth. We are headed for exactly what's happening in mild form around us more and more every day. When people don't care about each other, when people care more about profits and what can they get, that is hell. And if we don't get it under control, Revelation doesn't seem to be that much of a fairy story. So that's that's where I am. I'm also a firm believer that we're heading for idiocracy if we're not careful, because people have to care about each other not to head there. You do believe that there will be a specific point when all things end. Yes. But you believe the source of that is either going to be by natural cause or by man's ineptness or stupidity. 
Yeah, and again, it's it's the same as with creation. These are twined through with the work of God because the time scale for that is a time scale that I do believe the divine allows. It's what's created into the fabric of what we are. I think I know the answer for this one for you, but the question is, are there many paths to God? Absolutely. You know, and I was just talking about this with a friend the other day. They said, okay, you got no one can come to God unless you come through Jesus. And I said, yeah, a- absolutely. Great. I said, but I can be an atheist standing in Des Moines who is living that life that Jesus has called us to. And they're doing it because they've got a self-derived moral and ethical system. And they're going right through that Jesus-shaped hole in the world. They're doing all the things they've been told. And that path is is equally valid. You don't have to know the right words. You don't have to know the right choruses. You don't have to read the right book. You have to get it right in your heart, in your soul. Um, I loved, uh, there's a Jewish mystic, the Baal Shem Tov, and he said, let your heart be the altar on which the fire burns. Live so that someone seeing you can deduce your entire system of belief by simply seeing your life. I think there are a heck of a lot of people out there who live good lives, and I really don't care if if they're Muslim or Hindu or atheist or Christian or Jewish, their life still fits into that Jesus-shaped hole. Is there a place of eternal torment? It's a good question. I'm going to give you the wussy-ish answer here. So if, you know, I don't think there's a God who rejoices in harming, haining humans. I think if you have been a hideous, horrible human, in terms of your behavior. When you reach the end, for me, purgatory would be that period, that time where the weight of your life is brought to you and you can see it clearly so that you understand everything that you did that caused everything that we would call sin, that you have a full understanding of that to contemplate. And for me, hell would be that period away from the presence of the divine, contemplating the weight of everything you did so that you have to understand what that is and be sorry, repent for for lack of a better word. And if you can't do that, then yeah, it becomes hell. If you're not sorry, but God isn't moving away from you. You've turned your back on wherever God is and have decided that isn't where you want to be. You'd rather hang on to even in full knowledge of what you did and what harm it caused you still are saying well i think i'm right well god isn't moving away from you i'm gonna jump in here and kind of pause the interview a little bit so i can give some of my thoughts i wanted to speak up i i kept my tongue i think i did pretty good actually just listening to her perspective amy uh, was a very uh, pleasant person to speak with not say anything disparaging uh, at all in any way. I, she was fantastic. Her belief system, however, could not be any farther away from mine. And I do want to say her view of who God is. God is this genderless, nebulous thing. She refers to God many times as its self and the divine. God has no anger or wrath. All humans, and she eventually says this, all humans will eventually be with God forever. That's the universalist side of the Unitarian Universalist. She, one of the quotes that stuck, stood out to me was that she said, there is nothing that we as finite humans could do to permanently offend an infinite God. And I, and I just want to point out, this is very, very far away from any Orthodox Christian 
belief. And so, and I hope that you you see this. And I think it's really important for us to to see the different perspectives that exist out there. Also to understand that our views are radical in the minds of many. What I find is very interesting with the Unitarian Universalists is that they have this focus that seems to be on reason and, and thought and science, but but really what happens is their feelings and experience trumps any of those. What is most important is your personal experience or how you feel about something above any reason, logic, or scientific method. In fact, social justice, climate change, intersectionality, all of them would be at the top of their, quote, ethics ladder for Unitarian Universalists. I, I want to continue this because we drifted our conversation after this part of it. We, we continue to speak about Unitarian Universalism in particular, and uh, her belief as what it is that she does as a, quote, minister in the Unitarian Universalist Church. And she says some very compelling things, and, and I want you to hear that as well. Here it is. If you don't mind, I'd like to talk about Unitarian Universalism a little bit. Um, sure. Just kind of looking into it myself uh, in terms of trying to understand the background, history, all that kind of stuff of of the movement. It's been around for a long time. So, yeah, we've been around um, since we're the 1500s. We were two separate denominations, the Unitarians and the Universalist. So we come out of this dual Christian heritage where one side, the Unitarians, could not find evidence in the Bible historically, for the oneness of the Trinity. They were not arguing there wasn't a Trinity, but they could not find evidence that they were composed of the same substance and going forward concurrently, one creation in three bodies. And there was a lot of fighting, including some fisticuffs, you know, historically over this argument. And as they moved through time, more and more, they came to an understanding that God could be looked at different ways, that science and reason were important, that perhaps what mattered was allowing many paths to what we saw as the divine, but recognizing that there was an inherent worth and dignity in human beings and that a democratic way forward served us well. And so by the time you got to 1961, which is where the merger happened, they were no longer so worried about whether or not there was a God. They had moved to a more post Christian status, and they tended to be the elite, the well, well educated. On the flip side, you had the universalists who believed that there was no crime so grand that all could not be reconciled to God, that humans would all eventually make it into heaven. And they too had followed the same path. They had walked further and further away from Christianity and into a space where they were saying, you know what, there's a lot of paths. Starting in about 95, you know, we've seen religion decline across the country. We've seen church being less and less relevant to people because they don't understand we've outgrown our communities around the country. We work an hour away from where we live and we go to a doctor a half an hour in the other direction and our friends are scattered all over and are on the internet. The rise of the internet, you know, has pummeled churches because we can get online and talk to people who share our views and it's gotten harder and harder. We still are a 
a strong force for social justice because we do not believe in creeds. We say deeds, not creeds. Uh, we know what we see you doing. We, did, we have no idea what you're thinking. And so we are still there. We still have about 1,100 churches in the U.S. today, plus churches around the world and some other places. Um, we have churches in India and Colombia, New Zealand and Australia, you know, Canada. So we're, we're out there. And I've seen, like, as I said, as I studied kind of the demographics of the movement, it's one that started in Europe early on, but it kind of became, especially when we reached into the late 1800s and 1900s, it really became an American thing. Yeah. Most most of this was centered in America. And of course, like you say, you have presence outside in the world as well, but it's really still mainly an American institution. Your historical moorings are all over the map. Yeah, the Transylvanian Unitarians are still there. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, the one thing that is interesting is uh, the political action you see within uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church. I, I still have trouble with the idea of Unitarian Universalism simply because I, I feel like it's you You guys are kind of a one-stop shop for spiritualism. You know what I mean? It's like wh whatever your spiritual buffet, come on in. We got it for you. You know what I mean? It's like any and all beliefs and literally even to atheism to that point. You know what I mean? You've even mentioned that a little bit. And it's kind of hard to concretize something in that, you know, help me, help me with that. So part of what I do as a minister is that I'm here to help people ascertain two things. What do I believe? What in my heart of hearts do I believe? What is my theology? Mm -hmm. And as you know, that's a complex question. Absolutely. It involves, you know, for me and the work I do, it involves asking hard questions about what do I believe about the divine, about the nature of humanity, about the nature of what you have to do to live a good life. Some of the same questions we've talked about, what do you need to do to be redeemed? How do you cast off the weight of sin? So we answer those questions. That's my job is to help you figure out what is your theology. And then once we've got that, once you've got that, how are you called to live this in the world? What does it look like embodying this? And so what that ends up meaning is that while a lot of things work with us, not everything does, because we have, you know, those seven principles and we say, look, if your belief system roughly falls under here, you're probably going to be pretty comfortable in this community, but it's your job every day. It's your job to figure out how do you live your theology under what you believe and does it match this? And if it doesn't, it's my job to help you find somewhere that suits you, whether sure, that's sure a Christian church, a Jewish synagogue, somewhere else, a big part of what we're there for is to support one another in that all important search for what is my theology and how must I live it? What is the call? You guys, um, and, and like in, the, in this conversation that I've seen has been very, very pleasant. What I have noticed at times, because I've had conversations with UU folks before, what <laughs> seems to raise the ire of, of a Unitarian Universalist is uh, a person that is uh, strong in their Orthodox Christian views. Talk, talk to me about that. <laughs> oh, you're throwing the dynamite at me here. I love it. So one of the challenges that you use face when talking to an Orthodox Christian, and you know, it doesn't happen so much with mainline Protestant, but sometimes 
Um, one of the challenges is how, because we have such a general emphasis on science and reason, when some UUs are faced with the contradictions in the Bible or the doctrinal stuff that doesn't agree with itself or how the stories have come together, there are some people that will look at it and say, well, you know what, it's just all a bunch of mishmash and it doesn't, it, it contradicts itself, it contradicts other things. It's just a fairy story. And so what do you need it for? And you know, they get to say that we don't, you know, boot them out. Heck, some of us are them. We have atheist ministers, and I'm sure you're aware of that. Because we tend to lean toward people who do have such a heavy focus on rationalism. Occasionally, it's challenging to have any, um, the more esoteric for lack of a better word, the belief system or the more non-rational based it becomes, the more some of us are challenged because it's it's just not scientific and so we're not going to truck with it. And given the fact that we're all in the same church at times, it can be quite interesting um, creating services when half the congregation is a rationalist free thinker, a third are Wiccan, a quarter are Buddhist, and then we have a group of Christians kind of scattered throughout, services can get really challenging. Let me ask you this, in the UU congregation, say I was a, a person that came and I'm, you know, maybe I'm disenfranchised. I've had some church hurt in my background. And so I'm coming, you know what I mean? And, but there's still some beliefs and, and uh, practices that I'm holding to that I, I just find to my core are unshakable. Like, so say I come in, but I have a deep conviction that, um, you know, I'm, I'm pro-life. I'm adamantly pro-life. Would there be a place in the UU organization for a person like that? Absolutely. There is very little where I'd have to say, no, you're probably not going to feel at home here. Not ever. Um, my prior congregation was about probably a third Republican. And I mean, very conservative Republican and probably two thirds combination of Democratic and Green. Mm -hmm. Everybody got along fairly well. You know, there are some things that you probably wouldn't be real comfortable. You know, if, if, and the one I could think of was the immigration issue. If you really think that putting a, a three month old in a cage cared for by a nine year old who's screaming for their mommy, um, that that is acceptable as a way to be a human being, no matter what the circumstance, you're probably not going to be real comfortable. That's not to say that you wouldn't be welcomed. I, that's, that's the thing that I'm interested in is just like, where, where is it that you would say, okay, I got to draw the line here. That's just, that can't go on here. You know, you can't talk this way in our church or you can't right. do this. Yeah. What's the line for you? So the line's quite um, different for every church based on their community, their culture. You know, we, we are pretty clear, you know, we all have disruptive persons policies where if you're coming in and you're screaming and ranting and acting totally disruptive, we can remove you instantly. But somebody really has to try to not, <laughs> we don't proselytize. So there's no ability to like grab six of your best buddies from church and say, hey, let me tell you about the giant squirrel of the universe that I believe in. Everybody be like, sure, you can tell me this time, but you know, I'm not coming to squirrel worship. You know, we, we just don't, that's not a thing with us. We believe in a free and responsible, and that's in capital letters, search for truth and meaning. So the minute someone left responsible as our church sees it, there would start to be conversations. You know, if someone came in and they said, I believe it's a sacred practice to uh, have sex with 13 year olds, that is not responsible. Right. 
There is no world in which that is responsible. And I would say to the person that is not responsible and you can't do that here. And so that that brings up an interesting, I guess, question for me with the UU organization in general. You do obviously have your your boundaries. You know what I mean? What they're going to be. There's certain things that won't be crossed. And I think every congregation needs that. You know, you have to have safety protocols, all those kinds of things. On the other side of the coin, because you spoke of you said this numerous times in our conversation about finding good for what that means for you, you know, being good, living that out for what that ever means for you. Are there absolutes? Because you kind of just touched on one. There are a few. That is not to say that we are telling the person you're going to hell, you're wrong, you're horrible. It is in terms of our communities, you are not a comfortable fit here and this is not possible. So the example I use a lot is snake handling. I grew up in Kentucky, <laughs> way down in Kentucky. Yeah. Um, snake handling was and is a thing there in some areas. Yeah, that's that's sad, but it's true. Yeah. Right. So if someone came to my congregation and said, I'm a snake handler, I believe that the Lord commands me to pick up serpents. <laughs> I would say to them, okay, great, fine. You can believe that. I will support you in your belief of that. However, there will never be a service here that allows that. Mm -hmm. You will never be allowed a forum to tell other people about that because it's not responsible. Um, We will never welcome a whole crowd of your folks who have a like belief to get together and form a group here. So this is probably not a place where you will feel very welcome in community. You're welcome to keep coming as long as you understand your beliefs are outside our boundaries. Yeah. And, and, and I get that. And I, I think that's, you know, that's a reasonable thing. But what about, because you mentioned the example of, of pedophilia. That's, sure. you know, it's a good example. What community would that be acceptable in? I can't think of many. As a spiritual practice, I can't think of any. You know, the flip side is if somebody came to me and said, I am a non-offending pedophile. I know that that is there in my heart. That's where my interest lies. And I've had this, this, and this therapy, and I'm working with this program and I have never offended and I have no intention of offending. We would have no problem setting them up with a behavioral contract and saying, here's what it's going to take to have you in the building. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not allowed anywhere near the children. You're not allowed mm-hmm. in building alone, you know, you know, here's the list, but you are still welcome here because that's very different from saying, I believe in this as a spiritual practice that, you know, the, the right uh, to help someone, because there are uh, some native American practices that have uh, historically been there to like help welcome someone into sexuality. There are various spiritual practice around sexuality. If your idea of, of that is involves minors under 18 that's just not a welcome spiritual practice here i would go probably farther and just say it's always wrong in every circumstance you know and it's never i would probably agree with that (laughs) (laughs) uh well amy this has been an incredibly a delightful conversation i hope that you were blessed by it too um i really enjoyed being able to hear your perspective on things and learn about this and thank you so much for being willing to be a part of this podcast well my hope is that you sincerely enjoyed the conversation that i had with amy amy was a delightful person to talk to and uh, and i think that these conversations are important 
I, I believe with all of my heart, no matter where a person is coming from, you should always treat the individual with respect and dignity. Amy is a person that sincerely holds on to the beliefs that she has, but she is sincerely wrong in the beliefs that she has. And, and I think that we need to understand that there are things that are always right and there are things that are always wrong. Even if you notice when I, when I kind of pushed on the absolutes, idea that she hesitated a little bit and brought up uh, Native American tribes and practices and, you know, said, oh, well, I think I would agree with you on the idea of pedophilia, but it's hard for somebody in her position to actually firmly plant their foot down and say, nope, that's always wrong for everybody, always. I think that that's one place where Christian orthodoxy, and I'm assuming for the large part of those of you who listen to this podcast are going to come down, that's where we are. We know that there are things that are always right. There are things that are always wrong. I, I believe that the person that interacts with a Unitarian Universalist, the, the way to do this is not to really try to go about logic and reason. Well, you know, this is what the Bible says. This is why the Bible's true. I honestly, I think that you wouldn't find much points of agreement in that kind of a discussion. What I, what I do think is probably most important, and this is going to be the, I think, the truth with a lot of people from different faith backgrounds, is that the way that you're going to have influence, the way that you're going to be able to open up the conversations to begin maybe to pour the truth into their life is by your love for them in spite of what they believe and what they might even practice or teach. And so that's really, I think, the critical road that we have to take. We have reached an era in our day and age where most people, that's just the reality, most people don't want to listen to the truth anymore. And there are so many people that I would label of a depraved mind that you can't even use reason, rationality, or logic with them. The best thing to do is to love them and show them who Christ is by your treating of them in a, in a kind manner and doing acts of love and service for those individuals. And I think that's the best way to approach a person that is, for lack of a better term, trapped in Unitarian Universalism. Unitarian Universalism is a place, literally, it's like a, a fog of nothingness. It's a series of pretentious ideas that can't be lived out in a practical way in the real world, but it's a group of people that have, they've rejected because of their psychological feelings about Christianity. They've rejected the truth claims of Christianity, and they don't feel any need to live under obligation to any of those truth claims. And so they set themselves up as more reasoned, more rational than a Christian or a Christ follower, but they're not. The only thing that they obey and live by is their feelings and their experience. Those things trump everything for the person that's involved in Unitarian Universalism. So show them the love of Jesus, and then eventually you can teach them the truth of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast, episode one. I'm excited about this. Episode two will be coming next month, and you're going to be excited about that because I have a conversation with a priest at a Hindu temple. It'll be a fantastic conversation. Stay tuned till then. God bless.